0: to the second episode of the Dumbarton Oaks Byzantine podcast series. I am Anna Stavrakopoulou, the Programme Director in Byzantine Studies at Dumbarton Oaks. We are joined today by Niels Goll.
1: Hello, I'm Niels Goll from Edinburgh. Delighted to be here this afternoon.
0: And Divna Manolova. Hi, I'm Divna Manolova. Niels Goll is the Leventis Professor of Byzantine Studies at the University of Edinburgh. His research focuses on the middle and later Byzantine period, often from a comparative perspective. He has published a wide variety of articles on the imperial court, center and periphery, education and literature in the Paleologan era, three co-edited volumes, and one book on Thomas Magistros and urban elites in the early Paleologan period. Together with Curie Virag, he is currently co-directing a Byzantinist Sinologist project funded by the European Research Council on Byzantine and Chinese Education and Learned Culture from the 7th to the 14th century. Among his many affiliations, he has been a Dumbarton Oaks Junior and Regular Fellow, and he serves on the Byzantine Greek Editorial Board of the Dumbarton Oaks Medieval Library. His interlocutor, Divna Manolova, is a postdoctoral researcher at the Center for Medieval Literature, dually based at the University of York and the University of Southern Denmark. She was a Dumbarton Oaks Junior Fellow in 2011-12 and subsequently defended her doctoral dissertation in 2014 entitled Discourses of Science and Philosophy in the Letters of Nikiforos Grigoras," at the Department of Medieval Studies of Central European University. Tivna studies competing imperial worldviews and cosmologies in medieval early modern Europe and her current research at York focuses on theories of space and dimensionality in Byzantium and the Eastern Mediterranean from the 11th to the 15th centuries. They will be discussing Stephen Greenblatt's Renaissance Self-Fashioning From More to Shakespeare, first published in 1980 by Chicago University Press, focusing on the introduction and on Chapter 3, entitled power, sexuality, and inwardness in Wyatt's poetry. They'll answer questions like, what did courtiers in Elizabethan London and Paleologan Constantinople have in common? How important was self-fashioning in the career of learned men along the shores of the Thames and the Bosphorus? How do different works, written works, such as poetry or epistolography, reveal multiple invented selves of their author so i am very curious uh, Niels, about your selection given that stephen greenblatt is uh, the most one of the most preeminent shakespearean scholars so uh, please uh, share your thoughts with us
1: thank you very much for the question i know i think it's mostly response to the challenge you've given us to pick a Title from without Byzantine studies that has influenced our our thinking, and I've obviously picked it as one of the foundational um, texts of what's called the new historicism, which has influenced my thinking as a as a junior scholar. But I've also picked it because it does have a connection to Dumbarton no, Oaks, actually, because lots of this happened during my junior fellowship in 2004 and five. Um, Now, for me at least the new historicism has always been a very fruitful way of approaching Byzantine texts because it does emphasize the the embeddedness of rhetorical and literary production in specific Mm -hmm. historical and social circumstances and obviously the the social world of the of the Renaissance court especially of the court of Henry VIII that features so prominently in the early chapters of Greenblatt's book is uh, quite reminiscent, perhaps even more claustrophobic than the Byzantine court would have been at the, at the time. And we'll probably go into to more detail there. But the, the starting premise of the book of, of actors, of authors, defined by their social mobility, competitive environment, the, the hidden and deeper meanings, or the, the care with which they had to place every single word they were putting out there. Um, very much resonated with me after my study of, of late Byzantine rhetoric over the previous previous years. And well, I think I, I did read Greenblatt's book in the summer before coming to Dumbarton Oaks. Um, I did then revise my chapter on the late Byzantine theatron, the venue in which Byzantine rhetoric was performed in my first months at Dumbarton Oaks, and actually read Greenblatt quite a bit beyond Renaissance self-fashioning, including the Shakespearean negotiations. I remember re-watching DVD of Shakespeare and Love one weekend and appreciating, after my readings, appreciating the movie much more than, than when I'd seen it first as a master student in Oxford. So whenever I, I look at Greenblatt's book, which actually does say 2004 as the acquisition year, I do also think back of my, my junior year at Dumbledore.
2: Well, if I may actually ask the follow-up question, because the first question you started on with, Anna, is also a very personal one. And I also like the anecdote that Niels introduced about the Shakespeare in Love movie and his junior year in Dumberton Oaks. Um, So following up on that, you told us why you chose the book specifically, but why about this particular chapter? Why the chapter and why it?
1: I've actually been going by by my notes in the margins um, and realized, looking at the book again, that I underlined more passages in the Wired chapter than in the in the chapter on the previous chapters. Um I think it's probably because Greenland there touches on those aspects that I felt most fruitful for approaching the Byzantine, the Byzantine Theatron, the sort of the competitiveness among the, the the actors in that social field, the, the care with which words had to be placed but also that most of the writing I think what particularly resonated was that what's been quite often classified up to the 1980s in Byzantine studies well into the early 2000s as occasional rhetoric as texts devoid of any deeper meaning and just sort of archaizing or classicising rhetorical exercises actually do very are very very intricately tied into this jostling for, for social status for position for careers and that becomes very visible, obviously, if you look at the rhetorical performance at the late Byzantine imperial court in the houses of the of the imperial ministers, starting in the in the schools. So, it's probably that aspect of the chapter that resonated most strongly with me. But other other things that, that come into it are the, the emphasis on the the, the mask, actually, of this self-fashioning to get to the title of the book at long long last I mean this was by now we actually have um, wonderful articles not least by Stratis Popper that mention the term mask in the title discussing Byzantine literature but that was roughly a decade before these articles started started appearing so um, the whole idea that Byzantine authors were using sort of their rhetorical training to create a the character of themselves, I think the Byzantine term would be, would be ethos, ethos character, which Byzantine authors quite clearly tell us they could de- decipher or de- detect in the texts that were being read, read out, so what you wanted to do as a Byzantine orator was to, to present a beautiful version of your character out there in the, in the public, public sphere.
2: So basically, in asking Niels why he chose the White chapter, I was um, also explaining uh, that when I was reading his suggested reading, I also thought why he had chosen it. And um, the first thing that came to my mind uh, was the part of the introduction when Greenblatt specifies different types of uh, mobility and points out that in the case of Wyatt there is a specific type of displacement associated with his physical travel, him being an ambassador. So that was one one sort of flag uh, in my mind as I was reading. And uh, another thing mentioned in the introduction when he discusses all the cases, he mentioned that with the, uh, while others are not so strong, strongly associated with a particular class, Wyatt is a partial exception being part of the gentry. So I thought that would be a good comparandum with the Byzantine case and therefore tying to the kind of things that Niels is working on. So in in this sense, I think at this point of the conversation or later, we may turn to this uh, specific element of mobility and what kind of mobilities come across when we read about Wyatt, but also how it connects to other things we know from our own work. Uh, and maybe from the uh, late Byzantine examples we both uh, work on. But for now on, maybe we can start with the central issue of the book and this idea of self fashioning, because that's another thing that I um, n- noted in my notes uh, as I was reading the introduction. Greenblatt makes a point of explaining that uh, the very term uh, and the the very meaning of fashion changes specifically in the 16th century in the English language, in order to assume this kind of added layers we associate now with the term self-fashioning. So I, I just wondered, okay, if that's so closely tied to the development of English and to 16th century England, uh, in the spirit of all kinds of discussions we are all involved in right now about mm, possibly global Middle Ages or even just a wider scope when it comes to the Middle Ages. So could we think, Nielsen, and are you thinking, were you thinking about this when you were writing your book yourself, um, about the equivalence, uh, equivalent of self-fashioning in Byzantine terms? Or if, if that's, there is a linguistic component to this expression, how could we translate it? In other languages, in other cultures of the time, or early, the earlier example of
1: Paleologum Byzantium. Well, as you say, the term to fashion oneself or to fashion seems seems uh, specific to the 16th century context. Greenblatt is dealing dealing with, but the concept of expressing one's subjectivity through through rhetoric obviously predates the the Renaissance by quite a bit. Even though, I recall from the introduction, Greenblatt in. Not untypical Renaissance scholar fashion seems slightly doubtful as to what degrees this would actually apply to the Middle Middle Ages, but um, coming from Byzantine and back then, actually Goyevich's sort of book denying individuality in the Middle Ages was was probably still standard standard reading. I hope I'm not. Grossly mischaracterizing it because I stopped reading after the first chapter from what I recall, which incidentally features the nuns of the Lincoln College Tippicon as an example for the alleged lack of individuality in the in the Middle Ages. Which of course if you look at the manuscript of a whole couldn't be further from the from the truth. So, while well, obviously the English verb verb to fashion did not exist in Byzantium, the idea of expressing oneself through one's rhetoric, I think very much much did and is, is exactly tied into this almost decade-long process of becoming a performer of, of rhetorical texts, of rhetoricized texts, of percepsis, of receiving a paideia, becoming a perpetev menos, as it were, a learned person. And I think one aspect that, that Byzantine studies have not paid enough attention to then and, and even now is the results of acquiring learning, which, of course, serves the purpose of acquiring intricate knowledge of, of grammar and, and rhetoric, but was, as sticking to the late Byzantine period, not least the letters of, of Maximus Planudi's emphasize again and again, was very much devoted to forming character. And not only character, a virtuous character, so very much comparable to what's going on across the Latin Middle Ages as well, that through studying grammar rhetoric you ultimately acquire mores character customs as as well and as i said these this character these customs are very much to be expressed in the rhetoric performed so even if i would necessarily translate any of these terms as self-fashioning i think the idea of putting a version of yourself out there in a public competitive context and ideally on the basis of this version of yourself make a distinguished career at court in the church, or also an option in the late Byzantine period, sort of very purposely refused to to, to define yourself against those pursuing a career along these lines and aligning yourself with a, what Greenblatt would Greenblatt would probably call a different authority. Um, so all these options were very much uh, available to Byzantine Byzantine students of the time. Um, since you've mentioned the, the social background, of course it's all very much tied into specific social backgrounds. As as we know, Byzantine society is less clearly stratified than, than other societies. Um most, most readers in the learned individuals in the late Byzantine period, as in earlier Byzantine periods, do obviously come from, from socially affluent from affluent, economically affluent. Backgrounds that allowed them to invest the money and time into acquiring an edu education. So, um, some of them have loose ties to the gentry. Manuel Filis is an example who obviously was sign of a family that had become displaced in the wake of the Turkish conquest of, of Asia Minor. Others like Majestros are tied into the urban elite of uh, of Thessaloniki, um, whether whether a member of the lower aristocracy or the higher higher Bourgeoisie or whatever you want to call it, is not always, always clear. Um,
2: what about the role of poetry in this creation of uh, a, a public performative persona? Because in, in the chapter we read, that's obviously one of the elements of why it's. Um, poetic self and courtly self, and it's a very specific one as he's uh, someone familiar with Italian poetry of the time, um, and some someone who speaks more than one language and is a, but is able to transpose, translate, translocate poetic forms uh, into the English language. So, is there something parallel in terms of the importance of? Poetic expression and of writing poetry specifically um, in the figure of the Byzantine Papadomenus?
1: Well, I think poetry is, is important throughout the Byzantine period, especially from the from the eleventh century onwards, as we we've learned in in recent years, then continues into the Polylogan period with some exciting work done at the very at the very moment. It is perhaps not as all important though as it is in or seems to be in the, in the English Renaissance context given that we have this strong performance culture based on, on rhetorical prose texts in Byzantium too but um, my feeling is that especially for those impromptu performances poetry does play a significant role. Think of the, the poem um, transmitted under Tsetse's name where he gets challenged forgotten by whom and then very proudly tells us in the title that the verses recorded are those that he came up with extempore in response to the to the challenge of producing a poem on the on the spot. So I think most or many by then ten authors were probably equally well versed in, in verse and and prose, even though performance culture at court I wouldn't even say that, I mean think of all Manuel Phillies poems extolling the Emperor, praising the Emperor, so um I suppose they were probably prose and verse performances to equal equal degree. Self-expression, though, happens perhaps more in prose than in verse in this context. It's getting complicated. <laughs> um, obviously, you can express yourself in verse if you write sort of these, these poems to oneself as Mitohitis did in the, in the um, imitation of Gregory of Nazi, Nazi Jansen, which however, possibly not composed for performance at the at the at the imperial court, while those poetry that get did get performed at court is perhaps less less malleable for expressing yourself as rhetorical texts um, that, that
0: mm.
1: did get read out, such as letters if that makes any any sense. So more um, we'll formalized the occasion, more we'll formalized the, the the context, the less room there is probably for the self, but while if you if you send a letter to the emperor, if you if you find a way of like Celosus very often does, inserting yourself into narration, uh, reportedly praising somebody else, then there is is more room for self self-fashioning.
2: I, I suppose I don't have an answer to this question either. I was just thinking. I mean, recently there have been quite exciting things happening coming out of colleagues who deal with poetry. Yeah, and we have had discussions about what makes poetry poetry in the sense not everything in verse is necessarily poetry. And because it has been on my mind, um, based on the topic today, I was just trying to think whether um, there is a sort of added value to this, how to say, to this rhetorical self, to this ethos that is being portrayed and created through education. What is the difference when that is guised in the discursive output of a poet, as opposed to a prosaic, uh, prosaic persona. I'm just trying to think whether it makes a difference, whether one ne- renegotiates this kind of dynamics of knowledge and power in, a po- in the form of a poem, as opposed to in a
1: prose text. I suppose several, Considerations come into come into play generally I'm always have you know, been under the impression that, that you can express the same things in verse or prose it's partly a matter of predilection and partly a matter of, of, of occasion of and, and the expectations of the of the occasion so um I mean for exploring the self poetry is certainly the genre per se ever since Gregory of of Nazi and, and um, all these long poems in Unreadable hexameters by by Hitties, um Give us a polylogue example of of that, and and sort of response of Byzantine response, Quartius' response to the wheel of fortune that was turning, beginning to turn against him as it as it were, and then turned against him at the end of the first civil civil war. Um, also, think in the 11th century, probably poetry. I mean, poetry is certainly the the, the genre in which you can express yourself. Um, it's not always the genre that allows you to do so at, at court, but on certain occasions obviously mm-hmm. the, 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 the protocol requires a ceremonial, requires uh, a prose, an elaborate prose composition. These compositions on the other hand then are not, not those that deal with the character or allow that much space for the character of the, of the, of the author. You rather have to find more subtle ways of inserting yourself into these these orations. But let us probably do just the same trick as, as, as poems, in a sense.
0: Can I ask you a question, both of you, that brings uh, this discussion to the effect that this text has had uh, on your own? self-fashioning. That is to say, uh, Niels, because you started reading it, you said, as a junior uh, as a a junior fellow at the O while you were finishing your thesis. So um, did you become self-conscious when reading that and sort of uh, did you start thinking about you yourself presented what kind of persona you have created or did did, uh, it give you any insight on that?
1: It obviously does, does that to me, but actually to continue this autobiographical strand, I, I went to the Belfast Spring Symposium on performance at that spring from Dumbarton, Dumbarton Oaks and, and gave my, read my, my chapter on the theatron and performing in the theatron as a, as a paper at the spring symposium. And afterwards, Avril Cameron asked me whether I saw any difference between performing in the Byzantine theatron and performing at a Byzantine conference, and um, I think that very neatly captured it because the self-fashioning we, we are expected to do <laughs> as junior scholars in order to, to, to fit in and make our way through academia is different types of pressures, but certainly uh, similar pressures in their weight as, as people like Wyatt and, and our Byzantine readers were exposed to. So different contexts, different periods. And I think it's also something that, that Greenblatt actually says, right, that he's attracted to these figures for their their middle class background. And elsewhere he also talks about sort of mm-hmm. modern academia mostly being a middle class thing for worse rather than better, as we, as we know, and um, obviously... Renaissance uh, rhetorical culture and Byzantine rhetorical culture also mostly tied into the the affluent efflu- strata of society. To to conclude my previous thought actually for the paleologan paleo- period at least we do have evidence that uh, schoolmasters teachers gentlemen scholars did teach able kids of of poorer backgrounds for whatever reason either because they, they uh felt The need to be charitable or because they're actually realizing that sort of their cultural competence the the whole idea of of classicizing learning was getting on the back foot and they tried to increase uh, manpower as it were but but people like Philotheos Kokinos basically received an education working in the the kitchen of Thomas Magistros Um, and if you read the letters of the anonymous Schoolmaster in the 10th century, even there already you have ideas that people from one's hometown should receive an education for free. He doesn't tell us unfortunately whence he originated, so we don't know. But um he there seems to be an idea that you would want to, to to train kids from your from your own geographical area for free, and he also I think has a live in live-in servant to whom he would offer education. So for all the talk about economic affluence there seem to have at all times been ways of acquiring education by then and thus sort of get on the social mobility ladder, as it were from poorer, poorer backgrounds to probably again an aspect perhaps again an aspect that has not been deserved the received the attention it deserves actually
0: and uh, i want to ask you also how <laughs> uh, well received your use of green plot was by byzantinists by the scholars of the field
1: i was probably not the first one doing it actually although um, i mean other people it's also very much a polylogan thing i mean although the i I think i was very much called as graduate students tend to tend to be in the in the previous scholarship on the late byzantine period where the, the latest thing on the theatron was an article by by a russian colleague who argued very much that the theatron was a classless institution without hierarchies without these sort of social pressures Well people working on the on the Middle Byzantine period on the Komnenian period Margaret Mullet Paul Magdaleno had obviously already picked up on the patronage function of the theatron on the on the social mobility on the self-display 12th century examples like Michael Cognatis with whatever degree of seriousness writing this treatise against those who go around the rich houses of Constantinople displaying them themselves um, so as always or at least at the time, I think scholarship on the Middle Byzantine period was somewhat ahead of scholarship on the Late Byzantine period. And if I sort of worked on a broader topic, um, I would probably have taken taken these as my starting points rather than what was around on the on the Late Byzantine period. But generally, I think that that at least these aspects of 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 Greenblatt, others may be more problematic, but these aspects of Greenblatt are very need fit for for our understanding of Byzantine rhetorical culture. And generally I feel that Byzantines are quite quite open to to theory, certainly from the nineteen nineties onwards. So um theories and and ideas from different fields, it's probably part of the culture sitting on the crossroads of so many cultures that we've always been looking left, right, north, south and and everywhere.
2: Perhaps now I can answer your question, Anna. Um, I, I have to say I appreciate the personal spin you give to all these questions. I think it's important to remind ourselves that there is a personal component to the work we do, and it's not just for its own sake. And uh, I had an um, interesting experience rereading this piece after, uh, for the podcast, because my first exposure to Greenblatt and you know, Historicism was basically being uh, Niels' student in my MA and my PhD studies. And at the time, you know, of course, I was receptive to, receptive to everything. My m- mind was open. I wanted to apply everything and thought everything was very, very cool. Um, now that I read it years later, I was, and I shared this with Niels uh, previously, I was stricken by how male this book is um, and uh, that it is dedicated to six male authors and issues of gender and the portrayal of the male and female persona and their relationship, poetic, power dynamics, and so forth, we can discuss this further, is of course portrayed from the male point of view. And I understand why is that. Of course, I understand the nature of the evidence, but I think by now, so since 1980s, now we're in 2020. So now I cannot not ask myself, how would this story feel and read had it been from the point of view or with examples of uh, female authors if they are such to be given. And this is something I think uh, comes across more and more when it comes to Byzantine studies too because we have more and more, I mean the younger generations are more and more engaged with these questions because of our own social reality. Um, And being aware that you're reading these things, these sources as a female person who is also a scholar, makes you aware of how your own kind is lacking from the evidence. And of course, we know that women were there, and from the silences, we can logically also deduce their agency. But it's also true that the medieval evidence, and Byzantine evidence in particular, which lacks a lot of its archival sources, is very difficult for us to find the women. And I remember, in a, it, it was a recent online uh, discussion, I don't remember the particular context of the lecture, I think it was um, a seminar series in which uh, your first guest, the first guest of your podcast, Anthony Caldellis, presented the project for his new uh, history of Byzantium. And in the Q&A afterwards, Judith Herring, who is famously very much engaged with um, with this question, asked him, how do you find the women? And uh, what would be your methodology for finding the women? And I have to say that, uh, of course, he acknowledged the importance of the question, but it also is, it became evident that we still don't know how to find the women in uh, in those sources. So now that I, I, I was rereading this chapter, I was confronted with this question and there was an uncomfortable feeling at the back of my mind as I was reading it. Um, yeah, and, but... I don't know if you want to discuss this further.
0: Nils, what what do you have to say about that, about uh, uh, Divna's comment? Does it take a, a female scholar to sense how sort of masculine uh, Greenblatt's uh, uh, concept is? Uh,
1: or I wouldn't hope, hope so, no. Um, I think it's very clear that, it's, as Divna says, very much a problem we face in Byzantine studies. Studies too, since there are so few. I mean, as long as we rely on texts, at least since there are so few texts by by female writers surviving. It I quite often think it's rather lack of opportunity than lack of of willingness that unfortunately excludes the female voice from from many of uh, much of historical work. Although there's, as you know, even I um, uh, said, I mean, obviously exciting and important work in progress at the moment looking at, at minor characters and, and silenced voices in our, our rhetorical narratives to see how far you can get with giving them a voice and bringing them into the into the picture. Of course, for, for the stuff we've discussed so far, there is, to best of my knowledge, not a single female performer in these theatre at the Imperial Court in the Houses of the Ministers. Um, if it happened, we, we don't know. I mean, in this context where the women come in in Byzantium, more so than in Renaissance England, probably is as patron, patrons, patronesses, especially in the communion period, as you know, with the Sevastocatorius Irene, and then the various empresses, um, Irene Doukaina, uh, her daughter Anna Komnene, and so on, who all presided over their, their literary philosophical circles in the, in the 12th century, or paleologian examples like Irene Kumleina or Theodora Raulainer, um presiding over their circles. say. So I think Byzantine society probably gives a larger role to women than Greenblad Books in Renaissance England actually allows for, but still not as much of a role as nowadays we obviously would want to want to see.
2: And Niels, following up on that, because you're currently working on a database in that, you can maybe say a little bit what the database is about, but in your work on the database, do some interesting Women come up
1: again, very much in the supportive supportive function as addresses or patronesses rather than as as writers. Unfortunately, I mean, the database that Divna mentions is a a database of Byzantine literati with the express aim of of allowing us to map social mobility, places of performance. Um, since we are still very much constantinople centric, and what we hope to 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 do by by putting rhetorical performances on the maps, career stages of literati on the map, who quite often started their careers as junior figures in the provinces, at which time Michael Psellos explicitly tells her that he was 16 when he got his first job in the provinces, but also mentions that his new boss was a very much an accomplished rhetor, seemingly implying that his rhetorical training may have continued on his first job after he came out of out of school, as it were. So, by putting career stages, rhetorical performances attested in the provinces on the map, at least we are trying to create a geographical counterbalance to Constantinople, to show birthplaces of all these readers, and then obviously move to Constantinople to receiving there their education, but then circulated back into the provinces. So, at least with regard to. to Spatial mobility, I think we can make some some progress. Bringing women into this picture is still tied to the textual sources we have, unfortunately. So, um, again, they play with the well known exceptions, of course, of, of Anna Komnini and, and the polylogan female authors I've already mentioned. Um, they tend to stay in the supportive roles rather than the, the active literati roles, but generally I think this database is hopefully a, a, will be a tool that allows us to, to map certain processes that we've always been talking about and now existed, but have it will remain difficult quantifying anything given the nature of our, our sources, but at least to bring, bring it all into a database will give us a, a firmer basis from which to start when looking at, at issues of social and, and spatial mobility.
2: So perhaps, perhaps from your last point, Niels about um, portraying different types of mobility, social, economic, geographical. Um, so perhaps we can talk about another type of movement which was central in the chapter you asked us to read. Uh, and this is the kind of movement exemplified by what we call translation, paraphrase, um, metaphysis and so on. As we have seen from the text, you asked us to uh, discuss. Um, this was central in Wyatt's creation of his courtly and uh, performative pers- and authorial and performative persona um, by bringing forms as well as texts from outside literatures and then translating them, but also paraphrasing them into English. So could, could you speak a little bit about this phenomena and its relation to courtly culture and also to these dynamics between power and knowledge when it came to the Byzantine uh, case, or was this an element from Green Platt's book that actually influenced you in your analysis of Byzantine material?
1: So, what do you mean by the dynamics of power and knowledge?
2: Well, I guess uh, what I mean is that, as you as you pointed out, in order to create this um, learn itself, uh, one needs to go through a certain process of education. A number. So, the fact that you have an entry point to such a process, the fact that you have gone through it and that you have been successful and then can perform and um, demonstrate it within a theatron or at the court or in certain certain learned circle is what actually actualizes this, this whole process of becoming and being a Menus. So within this process, I, I guess it's my opinion, I know it's the impression I, I get, is that there is a constant interplay between the knowledge you acquire which is very specifically bound to certain conditions um and to the type of power that or prominence if you will that you acquire that then allows you to execute the type of mobility you are aiming at so
0: if, that, if that's clear
2: i i'm wondering about the the fact then that education that by that you paideia, that you're that you're acquiring and becoming part of and exemplifying in some cases, involve, is involved in such practices as translation, paraphrase, or even dealing with the very specific catechizing nature of the learned Greek the Byzantines used. So perhaps we can talk a little bit about this.
1: Translation is always a key concept for 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 Greenblatt in the Wyatt chapter, and while it does play a role in in Byzantine society, late Byzantine society, I think the first translation that happens is is really sort of this sort of acquiring. And education, what we haven't really mentioned so far, is all these performances. Most of these performances happened in archaizing, classicizing, sociolect, in which the Byzantine performers imitated a language that was based on a classicism that stretched from Homer into late antiquity, up to Procopius, Agathias, Theophyloctosimucates, and then possibly involved some later Byzantine models, such as Michael Psellos as as well. So the first translation that happens is actually within their own language from everyday Greek or whatever you want to call it, vernacular registers of Greek, or rather everyday registers of Greek, into this sociolect that was sort of the conditio sine qua non of performance in the public public sphere. So in that sense I think translation is a very <laughs> if you want to call it translation is a very important concept. I mean the present-day literary language is distinct from from the spoken language and everyday language, but perhaps to a smaller degree than the decade Byzantine, aspiring Byzantine readers had to invest into remodeling their their own language and their way of thinking and viewing the world and everything that comes through language to the point that they could, until they reached the point that they could enter the performative, the competitive sphere of of performances in theatre and else elsewhere. And I think performances or translations from other languages then come into into play at this later later stage where this classicizing learning, the byzantine learning is partially expressed through following the, the authorities, learned authorities of, of ancient writers. But the field of knowledge of course extends much further, including philosophy, astronomy, science and so and so on, and we see this quite clearly in, in the self-fashioning of, to use the term, of people like Michael. It's a loss that starts with language and, and rhetoric, but extends much much further. Um, already in the ninth century, Ignatius the Deacon, his life of patriarch Nicephorus goes through the um, describing by describing Nicephorus's knowledge. He's probably putting his own knowledge out out there. So learning is always defined as much wider than just rhetorical or grammatical learning and their translations or one branch of translation is is uh, as you know better than than me through astronomical works coming in from the Persian Islamic world in the late period. Um, there is of course now starting a huge project on, on stories um, that were shared across Eurasia between Byzantium and its neighbors. There obviously lots of examples of stories traveling through Asia on the way to Byzantium, the, the um, Balaam and Josef had as the most prominent Byzantine example perhaps, but just the tip of the iceberg, the Kalila, Vadimna and, and whatever comes to comes to mind. Well, um, I think it's rather sort of embellishing learning and knowledge on the on the fringes rather than playing a central role in this very much sociolect based uh, theater and culture I've been talking about so far, but of course it does play, I mean think of, of Gregoras predicting the, the solar eclipse in the imperial theatron That's probably one of the situations where it all comes to, together, and we know that I mean, Andronikos himself read out philosophical treatises at his court. I think the one with the dubious claim that, that air is more humid than, than water, and then uh, his courtiers had to humor him in response to that, which makes me think of the passage of which Greenblatt says that it's the supreme pleasure of power to impose fictions on on everybody and that would probably be an example of, of that.
2: Yeah, but perhaps this is also a good point to finish with which we can conclude our conversation. I also like this passage very much and I thought it ties very well with the first episode of the podcast which also discussed in in a similar way the way um, I mean, fictions imposed within the, the earlier Roman Empire. And um, so I also noted it in my... In, in my reading, as something that we can refer to uh, today. And w- what is in this sense, I mean, in this sense, also kind of interesting the double play of fiction as alternative reality being imposed by whoever of the actors we are following, but also is paralleled by the kind of plasticity of literary fiction that we can maybe think about when it comes to this learned gentleman.
1: The basic setup is again very, very comparable. I mean, uh... Lots of the Renaissance court ceremonial was probably inspired by what they'd seen in Byzantium, which always had a more elaborate court ceremonial than the Western Western courts. So the, the very setup of uh, imposing fictions was always there at the Byzantine Byzantine court. The other passage that made me think is about the the image of the. Of the ruler, um, and of course the Holbein portraits of, of Henry VIII have a sort of unique plasticity to them, <laughs> as it, as it were. But on the other hand, as we know, the image of the late Byzantine emperor was also far more far more ubiquitous, as as is commonly, commonly realized. So there's probably also something going on about the, the image of the ruler in Byzantium. But I mean, in a sense, I think this whole this whole expressing yourself in this learned archaising sociolect could probably ask oneself to which degree that is imposing a fiction, everybody participating participating in that, no? I mean, sort of a social, Bourdieu would probably call it a, a social competence that is acquired over years, but it involves everybody, including the emperor. That's very much part of the, the project we're presently doing at Edinburgh. The emperor and the courtiers to participate in this, in this fiction of the social relevance of a largely artificial language as it as it were and the things expressed in this largely artificial artificial language um and that's also turning things things round. i mean expressing the, the power of the literati over the over the emperor and the the top aristocracy that they managed to establish so many days per year where these people have to sit in the audience listening to them perform in this in the sociolect which seems to exponentially increase from the 11th century onwards. Not that it's not happening earlier, but imperial orations and performances at court seem to be getting significantly longer from the 11th century, century onward. So um, obviously Emperor profits from the fictions these people put, put out there in praising imperial achievements. I mean, the the ritualized orations on this 6th of January, where the emperor gets praised for his achievements during the, during the past year, which, probably more often a fictional account of what happened than close to any any resemblance of reality, however however, de- defined. But by getting people to praise him in this way, of course, the emperor gets entangled in, in their web as well and has to suffer through days on end, listening to such performances, sitting in on the examinations of the students who, who hope to make a career in the bureaucracy. Um, uh, and even while as 12th century Sources tell us he leaves the actual examination to to a competent courtier. he still has to be present and listen to to the impromptu performances of the students as it as it were and some emperors might have liked it, obviously, but others I suppose very much suffered while while sitting there on their throne listening to performances
0: just listening to you now, I was wondering whether uh, we can think of current um, such practices. Um, of self-fashioning, of uh, praise uh, to the ruler, or um, I don't know if you want to comment on that, or if you, any of you would like to s- say something to conclude our podcast today.
1: Well, I mean, yes, obviously pleasing power by means of fictions and performing fictions is a fairly timeless topic and one doesn't have to look very far in the present moment to find suitable suitable examples one could one could list. Um...
0: it's up to you completely. Yeah. Well. No, I think you addressed it beautifully, yes. I think. Well, I, I guess
2: you can doesn't you don't have to go deep into it, but you can say at least that I mean reading and discussing these kind of examples as we did today, it makes you reflect on your own participation in similar processes. And perhaps you know there is something to be learned by
1: that. To the point that sometimes I ask myself, as you can actually justify being a Byzantinist and then studying things long past while the world around you is in flames, and whether you should not direct your efforts to to performing in in these current theatres rather than the theater of the of the Byzantine Empire, as it as it were, which is not what you had in mind, I suppose, but. My thinking has taken me there occasionally recently. I mean, how can I justify sitting at my desk, dealing with these things long past while, uh, that's why we might have something to contribute to current debates, yes.
2: As we keep on seeing the things long past become relevant every now and then, and then you need experts.
0: Yes, and and as educators, you are sort of forming the next generation that will be participating in the debates you know they will not all become Byzantinists I hope
1: that's what keeps us all in the profession yes (laughs) indeed
0: exactly wonderful thank you so much thank you for a a fascinating chapter and writer and a fascinating discussion very very discussion thank you thank you very much thank you Our podcast musical theme is from the Concerto in E-flat, Dumbarton Oaks by Igor Stravinsky, recorded by the Smithsonian Chamber Orchestra, Kenneth Slowick conducting. Special thanks to our colleague, Daniel Bumhauer for helping us obtain access to the musical theme. And lastly, as always, thank you for joining us, and we hope that you tune in to our next episode.